Hello, I'm Peter Eyers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Bob Peet is a consummate man of the theatre. He is genial, passionate and accomplished, having navigated many roles and positions over several decades. His professional theatre career commenced in 1959 when he joined the Tintuki Puppet Company as a trainee puppeteer, eventually being appointed head puppeteer. Bob toured Australia several times with the company and spent six months touring 14 countries through Southeast Asia. He then moved into venue management and opened and managed seven performing arts complexes around the country. Returning to Sydney, he became the manager of the Sydney Lyric Theatre at the Star City Casino. Never one to sit idle, Bob then returned to touring and embarked on a world-first touring the musical Cats in a 2,000-seat Big Top. The 14-month tour covered most of Australia and led to further tours of Greece and Shout, the legend of the Wild One. Bob has also been Miranda Musical Society's resident designer for countless years. He has directed, designed and created sets for over 40 of the company's productions simultaneously producing sets for professional companies, community theatre groups and schools. Bob is now ready to take a break and recently announced his retirement. He'll be missed by many of the folk who have had the pleasure to work alongside him and by audiences who have appreciated the work conceived and delivered by this quiet and humble theatre maker. Stages was thrilled to traverse Bob's story and to witness him recount a vivid and magical life on and around stages. Uh, that was that would have been in 1964 or five, before we were we were gearing up to go to Southeast Asia. Peter, Peter Scriven had written a new show called The Explorers, and it was an art piece with beautiful puppets and beautiful music but no dialogue and it was to tell the story in mime well you can get away with with adults with puppets you can't change facial expressions or any of that <laughs> and it was one of those shows that even the puppeteers on the bridge at, at the final rehearsal were thinking what the fuck are we doing <laughs> we had no idea and so when the, the it was Department of External Affairs was sponsoring the, the trip um, and they came and said um, don't like it so uh, we had to quickly refurbish this one, which we, we knew backwards anyway. Was that the magic pudding? No, this is, this is a little fella, Bindi. Right. And, and, uh, which was ideal to take to Southeast Asia because it was all Australian animals. Yeah. And uh, so we did that, and we had a few divertissements from the explorers, like a, a, a ballet with the brogues and that sort of stuff. But that, and that was taken that we, we, we rehearsed this at the assembly hall of the uh, the old showground in uh, Moore Park. So we're talking about the Tintookies, of course. Tint, the Tintookies, yeah. The Tintookies and, and the Elizabethan Theatre Trust were the well, the trust was the driving force. With then it was Elsie Byer, the the um, she was the head of the trust, or she was not not the head of the trust. She was the she made it work. So tell me what the Tintookies were, or who they were. What they were? Look, it, they were. A, it was a mythical, a mythical name. Um, allegedly, uh, that Peter Scriven made up or discovered. Uh, it was allegedly meant little people who live in the sand hills. And now I guess they were 
the equivalent of what we might say pe- uh, fairies, little leprechauns, or Australian versions of that. Right. That um, would come out and do all sorts of things. So that supernatural feel. Supernatural thing, and they they were puppets of colour. <laughs> they were, uh, and and Bindi, of course, was a was an Aboriginal boy. And in, in this particular story, little fellow Bindi, you know, gets lost in the bush, gets befriended by the animals, and there's adventures with the animals, and eventually they take him back to civilization. So it was quite a sweet story, um, and all very, you know, top-notch actors were doing the soundtrack. We didn't do the voices. It was all recorded uh, soundtracks and original scores. Um, Eric Rassel wrote the score for this one. When we did the magic pudding, that was a guy called Hal Evans. So I mean, the music was beautiful, and and the soundtracks were absolutely superb, because they you know, they were all, all good names that um, that did did, did the uh, did the soundtracks. Uh, from my reading, I believe the characters were all a bit culturally diverse. You know, Crumpy Koala and Pandri Possum. Yes. And Wilpy Wombat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it was only. Gee, a few months ago, and I don't know how it, oh, it happened. A lot of the puppets have ended up with the uh, Walford, uh, is it Walford Broughton Museum over at um, uh, Neutral Bay. And um, I wrote to them to say, you know, when the COVID things over, I'd like to come and look at them because I was involved, blah, blah, blah. And the guy running the show there sent me a photograph of crumpy koala he said this has come to us this particular puppet uh, was purchased by a man and it's in London is this one of these and I looked at it and I said yes it is it's probably one uh, after the magic pudding before we did this particular production Peter Scriven took uh, some puppets with him to uh, the UK and we suspect that uh, that crumpy was one of them and I, I told him how we could check for sure that because they were made in a certain way in earlier days when I came along I introduced a different way of making them they looked the same but the insides were slightly different and um, that, that's how it would, have, it would have been able to tell but I'm sure it's one of the original and so that's that's there in somewhere in London so as a puppeteer you were making the puppets as well we we were rare birds because we used to make the sh- make them as well they were designed by others and and experts would come in and you know uh, craftspeople would come in and do do for instance with the magic pudding um the puppets were designed by norman lindsay somebody else uh, would come in and do clay models of the heads we would then uh, cast them make plaster casts and then we'd make make uh, shapes we, we used to a material called, in those days called celastic, which was like a felt impregnated with whatever, and you, you soaked it in a, in a solution and it would dry rock hard. Can't use it nowadays because it's terribly toxic, of course. <laughs> uh, so we would make them, the bodies, uh, this guy here, Igor Hitchka, he was the master puppeteer. He had a, a wealth experience from Europe and he'd, he'd worked um, with the Padreca company. He's, which is the great Italian puppet company. He'd worked with them and his family had a puppet company. So he knew about the construction of bodies and what what you need inside uh, in very uh, simple form, very old fashioned, but it worked because we had people would come along and say, well, you know, 
the eyes would be better if you had springs and he would say no because springs will stretch and the eyes won't close but if you use a counterweight it will never break down and it was true we, we tried all sorts of things and we still kept going back to this old way so yes we would make the show and of course when we toured um, there were, in those days there was no crew we did everything we would arrive at a venue with this Arts Council bus truck thing and we'd spend two hours unloading and bumping in, setting up, have a cup of coffee, do a couple of shows, have a rest, do an evening show, put it all down, go to sleep, next day go somewhere else. So Another opener and another show. Another opener, another show. And um, it wasn't until we went, when we went to the, the, we did the capital city, the big theatres, yes there was crew there to assist because most times we would share the theatre. We, we'd be performing in the daytime, all matinees, uh, all matinees and maybe Saturday matinee, and in the evening there would be whatever show. Like the first experience I had was that was at the Princess in Melbourne, um, and it was we were there for Christmas January season, and um, Once Upon a Mattress was the... The main, the main show, the, uh, and with you know, beautiful Gloria Dawn and everybody else. So we would uh, our, our our bridge would be set up on a truck and pushed away or wheeled away into the wings. They would do their show, then we'd all come back again for the next day. So the theatre itself was very busy, um, and it wasn't until we got to what well, would South East Asia. Uh, well, by now we had a whopping big bridge. It was aluminium. It had to come apart to fit in aeroplanes, and and um, we we did fourteen cities in in six months, fourteen countries in six months. And it wasn't until the, the the worst part of the touring. I mean, most of us was fantastic, but when we got to Japan, we discovered in Tokyo that that the guy there who was the equivalent of Harry and Miller there through our forward manager, advance manager, had organised a 14-city tour in 12 days. (laughs) (laughs) On that bullet train. (laughs) And we thought, not possible, but the logistics were fantastic. They had a Japanese crew. We would arrive at the theatre in the morning. We'd unpack the puppets, because by then the bridge would be standing. We'd unpack the puppets. We'd do a couple of performances with an English soundtrack. Uh, no, sorry, Japanese soundtrack, uh, Japanese dialogue, soundtrack, English songs. Uh, pack up the puppets, go to the bullet train, travel, get off the train at 11 o'clock at night, go to bed, get up the next day, and, and so it went on. And they would pull they would pull down, bump out, and they would drive all night to the next city. And they would be sleeping while we were doing the show. <laughs> and it was just extraordinary. And Logistics. Um, and we did all these cities that we didn't see. We saw the theatres. We, we played most of the time in Kabuki theatres, which was you know, extraordinary because we had this, you know, while we had a big puppet show, these were huge stages. Very wide, aren't they? Very yeah, wide. Yeah. And we were, you know, it was all masked down to blazers. And um, we would be, we would do our show to, you know, a couple of thousand Japanese school kids at every matinee, every performance, and um, off we go again. You talk about the bridge. Is that like the puppet theatre, the proscenium arch? It's a bridge that you stand on. It's it's because these were marionettes. um, The bridges vary in in height depending on. We we had a couple um, for uh, a country tour 
the bridge, the space from the puppet stage to where we would stand was about uh, 2.1, like seven feet. Uh, that then there'd be us, and then uh, for the bigger uh, capital, the, the, the main stage theatres in the capital cities, uh, that was about 2.4, about eight foot underneath, um, and quite quite wide, and it had you know scenery that worked with electric tracks, it was tracking and it was the full production but on a smaller scale. And all of that had to be you know, put up and put down. Wow. A lot of theatrical forms have a particular etiquette, you know, Commedia yes. dell'arte, there's yes. great respect for the mask, yes. the way it's put on. What about puppetry? Are there certain etiquettes that, that you pertain to there? Um, yes, uh, there, there was an etiquette. Um, it took me and it takes anyone who is interested. Uh, when I joined the company, I was uh, 19 and I was going on this first uh, tour of, uh, it was a six month tour. And um, I had lessons from Peter Scriven himself and Igor Hitchcock, who was the puppet master. And I didn't work on the bridge for about a month. Um, because it, ta it, it takes quite a while to get a balance and to get a swing and, and uh, it, they had a short string puppet and I spent every day with his short string puppet just bouncing it up and down so the legs would swing. It's all a balance thing and then there's the, the etiquette part of it is that you don't interfere with each other's work, although sometimes it, it might need two or three people to work one puppet. Right. Um, but there's a procedure. It's it's the whole thing is choreographed, and you don't change that. Particularly in in some of these bigger shows where there are processions, there could be thirty or forty puppets crossing the stage in a procession form, and so it's carefully choreographed. So you have to stand here, then you move to there, and he comes on or she comes on with whatever puppet. Um, yes, that's that's. That's it's certainly an etiquette, and it's it's, it's a form that people don't realise uh, what happens. You know, from the front, it's just a group of puppets doing stuff. It sounds like the show on the bridge is just as exciting to it watch. Is, yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. It's um, the rehearsal process was quite interesting because, particularly if a puppet leaves the stage on one side and needs to come on from the opposite side in a later scene, there's somebody on the floor with we had a puppet pole as a special a special aluminium pole with a hook thing on the end. And so they could uh, take a puppet off a rack and run behind a psych or whatever was at the back, round to the other side and hang it up ready for you again. Everything was, as they choreographed, and everything had to be in in a particular uh, form procedure so that you know that you'd, you'd come off, you'd put your puppet there, then you'd pick up the next one. Because, you know, with a, 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 big, uh, a big crowd of puppets and there's only sometimes seven puppeteers, um, uh, you need to do it very carefully uh, because you can, if you get out if you get out of step, out of line, um, it can be quite chaotic. <laughs> yeah, jump on that train and don't get off to the end. Exactly. Uh, were there certain puppets that appeared in several shows or were the cast of characters for a particular show they were, they were built for that? They were built, for, well, yes and no. The... Um, uh, the first production was the Tintukis, the show called the Tintukis. Now, they, at that point, they weren't um, uh, Aboriginal characters. They, they, it, that was a different storyline, and they were 
you might say European style characters and it was a mixture of animal type characters or or human characters then um, uh, later the next the next big production was little fellow Mindy well the whole com complexion changed and they were these um, Aboriginal type uh, fairy creatures uh, so that they were different again so no there was no carry through from show to show although um, no, I'm I'm a bit wrong there because the 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 uh, Crumpy Koala Pangean uh, Wolpy Wombat they did appear in um, in segments of the first show, The Explorers, so they were carried on to uh, to Little Fella Bindi. Although there was no link in the actual stories, but those yeah. characters appeared in in both of well, the I shows. I suppose they were audience favourites. So yeah, and yeah. they look and they did they did not appear in the Magic Pudding, of course, because that it had its own yeah, unique characters. unique mm. characters. Yeah. Mm. Um, Peter Scriven, he, he founded the, the Tintin. He did. He was an extraordinary person. He, uh, he was, uh, yes, a puppeteer, but he was gifted in that. He was, uh, left two fortunes, family, old money. He never worked as such. Except with his art form, and, and good luck. His great it. passion. His great passion. Yeah. So he he uh, he worked uh, with himself, and I think a couple of other people with the Peter Scriven puppets, and he did smaller shows. Although having said that, he did play at the uh, at the you know, some of the big houses, the the, the old Theatre Royal in Sydney, and places like that. He would do a season, and that was where it was during those days that Igor Hitchko, who had arrived from Poland and the sto his story was that he, he stowed away on a ship um, to get out of, you know, to get away from the, the bad people and um, ended up in Australia in his slippers and pajamas. Yeah. That's his story and yeah. I, I quite believe it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But he bought enormous skills and then um, uh, Peter decided to go bigger still and that's when he created the Tintukis which was a big, uh, a big production, a main stage production, and by then um, he was in association with the, um, the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, who who managed us for a long time. He was one of the first students, apparently, to be examined in puppetry in 1943 by the Education Department in Victoria. Really? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So probably one of the, uh, yeah. the founding parents of puppetry in Australia. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he was. He was um, often referred to as as the, as the founding father of, of puppetry. And look, it was very sad because he it, later in life he had other interests and he was going to write you know, the important Australian movie and all of those things, which which never happened because he spent his time um, in uh, in Southeast Asia. And uh, eventually he came back to Australia and he was absolutely penniless. And he was found dead in a boarding house in Brisbane. With a dollar fifty in his pocket. With a dollar fifty in his pocket. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. extraordinary. It was extraordinary. I mean, he was, he was just this uh, wonderful, char charismatic character that um, uh, he could sell a dream, there's no doubt about it. Absolutely sell a dream. But And it was just so sad that... Um, that this happened. He, I, I saw him in quite a few years after uh, all of these. It would have been in the 1960s, not about 19, early 80s, I suppose. He'd come back to Australia for something, and we had a bit of a reunion. 
and he was all set to start again. And I will, you know, you will do this and you will do that and you will do this. And we had to say, Peter, things are different now. We've got our own lives. We can't be devoted as we were then. Because, you know, you'd work around the clock, and run home and have a shower and come back to work again. Because you did it because you loved it. Things changed. And uh, it was sad that he, he still had the dream, but um, he just couldn't make it happen at that stage. Died of a brain tumour too, I think. He was diagnosed with a brain tumour. That, uh, could, that could well have been. Brought his, his could well back to been. Australia. Yeah. Is puppetry a, a dying art form? Um, oh, in Australia, I'm talking about it, because it certainly look, lives I think vividly it's a, in the it's world. It's a very rare, rare beast now. I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's no, uh, what I'd say, bigger companies. Um, there's a company out of, um, is it Handspan in um, yes, West, West Australia? They they do some interesting things. Yeah. Um, there was a group, or was it Tasmania? Um, th- th- there's been a number of uh, uh, productions uh, and and groups that pop up from time to time, but I I don't think, for my observation, there's no great continuity as there used to be. And there was a, um, a terrific postgraduate course at the Victorian College of the Arts, but they axed it recently. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. See the. the in in the in the later part in the later six nineteen sixties seventies, by now the Elizabethan Theatre Trust had divested itself of the Marionette Theatre of Australia. They were quite separate, and they um, they had a venue in the Rocks. It was at the old Sailors' Home. It was a, a theatre uh, that became a, a, their home, and they would do productions there. But I think, like a lot of those places, the rent killed them. Um, and uh, bit by bit, the whole thing just sort of disintegrated. Uh, puppets went into the store, went into various places. NIDA retained a lot of them, and, and they've now ended up with that uh, wolf at, uh, at the collection at, at uh, Neutral Bay. Um, yeah, that was that was a very sad time. Um, there were a couple of smaller operators that that uh, still continued, but they were doing. You know, I don't. I don't say it in a derogatory manner but they would do kids birthday parties and stuff mm. like that it was their living mm. and it was the art form was still continuing but quite different to um, playing in um, uh, bigger theatres or even you know, touring in, into school halls around around the country but when puppetry does pop up in a show you know I'm thinking of something like War Horse yes or, or even Avenue Q yes. or that dinosaur yeah. arena show yeah. I mean it's just spectacular it's extraordinary um I, I uh, had heard about Warhorse, and a few years ago I was in London, and I was able to see it there um, in its original production. And uh, for me, and a lot of other people too, um, these are these are real creatures. Mm. You suspend your disbelief, don't you? And you, you go. Um, yeah. It's the same as um, as uh, Kabuki uh, puppetry in Japan. Um, Sorry, Bunraku, yeah. Bunraku in Japan, uh, where you know that there are three or four operators with one puppet, and you can see them, but it doesn't matter because if, if I mean, okay, I look at both, but Joe Blow will look at at puppet. that beautiful puppet doing whatever it's doing. Um, we were fortunate to see some of that in in Japan, and it was just just beautiful. And and there were a company did come to the Adelaide Festival. Oh, quite a few years ago that I saw in, in Adelaide um, 
and um, yes, uh, a beautiful art form. Even those Indonesian shadow puppets are, are very magical. Yeah, mm. yeah. Bob, can you recall the first time that you encountered a theatre? Yes, I would have been, I reckon, probably four or five. My dad was a, a musician and he was a percussionist, apart from being a wonderful carpenter and builder, but this was his hobby. Um, and he was, one of the, in those days, one of the rare birds that could actually read percussion music. So he was in great demand as a pit musician around the traps. Because in those, I'm talking in the, I'm talking about 1944, 1945, musical societies particularly were uh, very proficient. This is pre-television, and there would have been one in every, almost one in every suburb. And he was playing. I went with him to address to a rehearsal of the Desert Song at the old Ashfield Town Hall. And I still have vivid memories because in that show, it's, it, it calls for the comedians to arrive at the in the last scene on a donkey. <laughs> and I, I would was, I would go and sit in the pit with him, and and sure enough, they stuck to the uh, to the wish, and on came the comedians on a donkey, a real donkey, a real donkey. And I, could, I, I remember particularly because afterwards, the, the the show in itself was getting the donkey off the stage. The audience had gone, of course, and because the the donkey owner, trainer, whoever, had a truck parked at the side door and they had to coach, coax the donkey down a plank to get into the truck and the donkey didn't want to know about it. <laughs> I've got clear as a bell, I can, I can remember that. Um, and then, of course, I, I used to go to lots of shows and sit, sit with him. And then I think, then later, one, um, and I'm not sure how old I was, but I remember going with a family, as a family, to the old Theatre Royal, sitting in the gods, and we saw the old operator, Rio Rita, with Gladys Moncrief. I've got still got very clear memories of that. Uh, particularly in those days, they often used to pop in a popular song of the day. They just pop it in somewhere. Interpolated Melody was called. <laughs> and the one they used there was a, a piece that Richard Tauber used to sing called Don't Ask Me Why I'm Leaving. And for some reason, um, Rio Rita, it was in Rio Rita. <laughs> As I, I don't know how old I was. I, I, gee, I might have been six or eight or something like that. What do you recall about that production? Um... In the show, I remember there's a scene in the second act where they're on a barge and for one reason they need to get the barge needs to float across the river to the other side for whatever the storyline is. And to do that, because Williams did wonderful smoke and mirror tricks, there was a grand row behind the ship's rail with a headland and a lighthouse. And of course, it took about 10 minutes for that to, that to move across the stage. So then, bingo, we're, we're on the other side of the river. <laughs> Clear as a bell, I can remember that. The, the illusion of theatre. Absolutely. What about Moncrief? Was she a glamorous creature? Look, I, I don't Stunning remember a presence. great deal about her. I saw her uh, after, after that uh, several times when um, Harry Wren would do those wonderful... Um, thanks for the memory and the good old days uh, musical reviews and he would have a heap of um, 
stars of yesteryear, uh, Gladys Moncrief, Jim Gerald, George Wallace, um, Queenie Paul, those people would would um, almost be exhumed and do these variety shows, um, which were pretty tacky, but by God, they were good. <laughs> and you'd go and see all these wonderful old people. I, I had the great pleasure years later to to meet Queenie Paul because I was when I by now I was I was managing the theatre at uh, Orange and we were putting together a program of morning melodies and I thought Queenie might come and do that because I know she'd been doing some of the clubs and I went to see her. She lived above the post office at um, at uh, Helson Park or somewhere there, and um, she was just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Sadly, the show didn't go on because <laughs> Queenie being was she was a wonderful old con woman. Because the minute I got back to Orange, the phone would start ringing. Oh, darling, um, I really need to bring my protege. Uh, I need to bring such and such. I need to bring this. And suddenly, you know, a, a, a one woman and a piano show was going to be <laughs> a spectacle. <laughs> it was going to cost us a fortune. <laughs> Airfares, let alone anything else. So we had to pull the plug. The entourage. But she was, she was, it was extraordinary. Because, I mean, the, um, her flat was just, the walls were crammed with this fabulous memorabilia. So I imagine as a kid you're bitten by the bug. Of oh, yes. Yeah. yes. So, so what were your hobbies? Were you making set designs? Yeah, uh, yeah. Set I, models I, at home? I used, to make, I used to make model theatres when I was, gee... I don't know, I would have been eight or nine. We lived in Campsie at the time, and myself and a kid up the road, Neil, we used to make model stages, and his parents uh, found for him um, um, a model uh, stage, a model theatre, Pollock's Theatres, which is still still in existence. And it was, it was one of those, uh, almost a cut-out and joint put it together, um, in a heavy cardboard and it was just this wonderful Victorian uh, proscenium and stage and onto that we would put our own our own sets and do our own little shows. Um, yes, I guess that part started then. And that's and I, I guess you've got Dad who's also teaching you some tools of the trade. And that's right. And then later, um, we by then we'd moved to Padstow and we were quite involved with with Bankstown Theatrical Society. Uh, Dad was in the orchestra, of course. Mum, mum would make costumes, and I had only just started work by then. And I would assist backstage, or, or even go in the shows. I, used to, I, I appeared a few times, but then uh, a guy that used to do their scenery for some reason went away, and so I put my hand up, and I started working with them, um, and. It, Went on from there, then in later years, uh, Dad and I started our own scenery hire business because it was in the in the era that um, nobody built the musicals, so they didn't build anything, they hired it. And there was only one guy in Sydney, John Clugston. He had a heap of stuff that he'd bought from, from somebody else that was pretty old and tired. And so no matter where you went, you saw the same stuff the same scenery and so we thought we could do a bit better than that so we we built it would have been in the early 
early 60s, we, we built a production for the Bankstown Theatrical Society, The King and I. And I remember we, we charged £6.10 a night to hire it. And so what eventually became Padstow Scenery, which went on for another 10 or so years, um, that, that's how that was born. So you take those sets back and then yeah. recycle them and yeah, and we change and add. We 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 um, eventually built um, a big shed at the back of the house at Pad at Padstow, and the shed is still there, thirty four Ryan Road, and we would make a stock show. So I, I mentioned before that I'm writing a book, and the book's called "Do You Have Oklahoma." <laughs> And that's because... Was that a popular show, was at it? At that time, it, it was the flavour of the month. So we had Oklahoma in three different sizes uh, because stages were you know, all different. And so invariably the phone call, there'd be a phone call, do you have Oklahoma? Yes. What, which is the venue. So we'd know it would, they'd be 9 foot, 12 foot or 15 foot flats. And um, that that went on for a long time. But... Of course, in that period of time, I was also I'd go away with the puppets on, on a tour. I had three jobs really. I was working at a farmer's department store in the display department, or I was doing a puppet thing. And in the meantime, whenever I was back in Sydney, I'd be working with Dad at weekends because the scenery high business was all weekend stuff. Um, so we were very busy in the sixties. He eventually bought me out when I went into venue management and subsequently he sold the business some years later. And some of our, some of our backdrops still still pop up from time to time. Brilliant. The uh, job as a window dresser, I suppose that's your first forays into creating a world and designing? I always, or? for some, and I can't tell you why, but I always wanted to be a window dresser because in those days the windows, the, the um, displays were... were they were stage sets. And the Christmas windows, And the Christmas windows yeah. and, and Santa's Magic Caves and all that stuff. And um, I knew that I wanted to do that. And um, as it turned out, the woman, who, a lady lived next door to us in Padstow. She knew the display manager at Farmers, which was a, a magnificent department store in those days. She knew him and... I had finished my intermediate certificate. I was 14 years and 10 months. I got a job they, and I started work then. And um, I, I, I was there for four years solid, then, then started the, the puppet uh, stuff. And in between, I would, in between puppet uh, tours or productions, um, I would go back to farmers. I think I worked at farmers four times. Mainly because the display manager by then, uh, it was Morris Sullivan, he was, uh, he was a, a theatre tragic as well. And he was a, a wonderful designer for sets and he would design sets for John Alden, Shakespeare Company, what was then the New South Wales Opera and, and other shows. And he would take his, the display boys and I was one of them. And we would go and build and paint and do all this terrific stuff. So all of that was intertwined, uh, and it, it worked very well. I, I don't know how. I don't know why they would keep 
uh, taking me back at farmers because sometimes, I mean, one time I was literally there for two days. <laughs> I went back because there was no more puppet shows on the horizon. <laughs> two days after I started, I got a phone call. <laughs> We're off again. <laughs> so um, they did, and it, it, at the end of at the end of my touring. Um, after Southeast Asia, and by now it's 1967, um, <clears throat> and I, uh, at that point, I was I'd, I'd met somebody and I was going to get married, and I needed another job, and I got a letter from from Morris at Farmers to say um, we need someone to be the boss of the interior display department. Would you like it? So back I went to Farmers, and I was there for a couple of years. But I was really was the square pig in the round hole. That was not my forte. I was not into arranging handbags and beautiful <laughs> yes. gowns. I was. Uh, I had run the workshop before yeah. at Farmers, and then I went from there, and I became too. I see at David Jones' workshop, where we would make stuff for all the stores across Australia, and that was in those days. It was a whopping big concern, because that was when we used to make the Christmas decorations. Whereas these days. Somebody goes, to, goes to Japan yeah. and picks out whatever, and uh, it's all important. Because I suppose all of that stuff is disposable as well. It's not stored away for the year. Um, it's bought every year. Some perhaps. things are stored. Uh, most of it, you're right, is is, is disposed. Or uh, it might it might do um, uh, the Sydney the the, the Sydney store to this this year and it, and then send it to Roselands next year something like that that um, I, I think these days it's not even done by the display department it's done by contractors they just there's their contractors who specialize in doing department stores shopping centers whatever and they must have massive warehouses with Christmas stuff I counted up on your CV that about 125 shows that you've either produced directed or designed I have or it's probably even a lot more than that I have um when I was at uh, in the early days at Bankstown, I guess it was about sixty-one or sixty-two, might have been. Whenever, whatever the year was, um, I'd been looking. You know, I'd I'd been doing a lot of observation of shows, and I'd worked in the industry a bit. I knew, I, I knew a few more things, and some of the shows were a bit plain. Let's face it, and. <laughs> So I, and I said, I said, I would like to direct a show here. And so they gave me a Guernsey and I, I directed The Music Man, it was my first show at the old Capitol Bankstown, Capitol Hall Bankstown, which was a shocker, shocking stage, like a letterbox. Um, and it went on from there. Uh, I think my second show might have been The Merry Widow. Uh, and I, I myself confessed. Merry Widow Tragic, I think I've, I've directed the Merry Widow now about five times. Wow. The most recent one was three, four years ago at Rockdale Opera Company, uh, when I was very lucky because um, there was this wonderful Japanese man who was the musical director. He was also the musical director of the Strathfield Symphony Orchestra. So we had the Strathfield Symphony Orchestra. Right. We had it on stage because it wouldn't fit in the pit and we... We had to move the set right forward and have a stage extension. So we had this beautiful orchestra. Because I remember saying to him one night, "How many strings will we have for this orchestra?" Oh, oh, maybe thirty. 
maybe 30. <laughs> we were lucky, you know, with other productions, lucky if you had seven. And uh, the music was just extraordinary. So that was that was my last Merry Widow. That I, I but I'm, I'm still a Merry Widow tragic because the, the music's just so beautiful. Yes, there's so many facets that you rely on to, to come together. You know, the, the design, the, the the orchestra, the performers for that show to be satisfying. Well, I think it's the same with all shows. <laughs> I, I'm I'm lucky in that, or unlucky because uh, it means extra work. But I can usually design a show. I do design a show if I'm going to direct so I know exactly what's got to be where and when. And I've, I've, I've been able to pass that on uh, the, the directorial side. If I'm designing for somebody else, um, I will also design it um, bearing in mind that I might have to direct it, which has happened. Um, so I'm able to say them to them without being pushy or uh, appearing to take over, but I'll go to some rehearsal and say, well, if you do this, if that person leaves the stage on that side, uh, it'll be better because that scenic element can come on from there. Otherwise, you've got to wait, da-da-da-da-da. And um, most of the time, that's picked up. There have been occasions where people have no interest in listening to these reasonable suggestions and of course so by the time you get to the venue and you find that oh but um there's a wall there why are people li- oh that's that's what i wanted as well that's not the design <laughs> so I, I, yeah, there's been some moments um because you've had some challenging spaces to work in as well. Look, I mean, I think, of, you know, with Miranda Musical Society at the Sutherland Entertainment Centre, no wings, no flies. Look, we've been... Um, uh, we've become expert at the difficult space because some of the venues that people... Uh, are ringing, you know, ring in later years with Miranda Musical Society because we hire whatever we make or sometimes we'll make to order. And... And some of their requests are just extraordinary, um, bearing in mind the lousy stages that they have to work on. But we do it. I mean, at, 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 this, at the Entertainment Centre in Sutherland, we've done the biggies, we've done Phantom, we've done Wicked, uh, Superstar, The Boy From Oz. I mean, for me, The Boy From Oz was um, uh, an absolute triumph because we had we had a false floor. We had trucks going up and down stage, on and off stage. We had a a uh, runway at the at uh, a moving runway at the front that furniture would be put on in the limited wings and suddenly glide on and all this stuff. And I I remember sitting uh, in the audience a couple of times, looking and I thought, that's pretty good for this you know, this crappy stage, um, which I'm pleased to say is about to be demolished. Yes, we get a new entertainment centre. Any, any, any moment now, the builders move in because um, pre-COVID, uh, Miranda Mitchell Society would have just finished probably last weekend, um, La Caja, um Priscilla, and then the builders were moving in the week after. So Priscilla, Priscilla hasn't happened, uh, but um, the builders, I know the building plan planning is still happening if it's not ready to um, if they're not ready to move in. Watch this space. 
Watch this space. Why are uh, community theatre groups important? Look, um, I think there are there are people people belong to community theatre groups for a number of reasons. Um, some of them are purely social. Um, it it depends on on the makeup of the group. Some of them some of them are uh, evolved because of a great desire of one or more people to try interesting works that mightn't be seen uh, on, a, on, a, on a main stage or to simply um, explore or, and develop um, the particular art form. Um, others uh, like to do big shows because they like to do big shows. Um, they like they like the, the, the challenge, the showbiz stuff, the challenge, the glitz. Um, and in a, in a similar way to a, a pro show, at any one night, there will be uh, at least 100 people involved. Hmm. Um, on stage, backstage, orchestra, front of house, all of those things. And they will have, a, most of them have a terrific time during the rehearsal process. And if, if the ones that are serious, if, if, if they want to, you know they'll listen and learn at rehearsals because there, there are some pretty good directors amongst the the amateur fraternity, and it's not unusual now for pros to come in and direct a show or appear in a show. Um, and so uh, the the learning experience is available. It's a great opportunity to to try out those on stage roles, but also backstage roles. Do a bit of set building, Look, design, a, direction. A, a lot of a lot of people in the industry now have worked in um, in amateur or community theatre companies, uh, on stage and backstage. Um, one of the I just think off the top of my head, Greg Yates, who's one of the most sought after lighting uh, and technical designers in Sydney, who travels all over the world. Um, He's done a lot of stuff with Canterbury Theatre Guild when he started. Um, Mary Benn, who until recently was an absolute top-notch stage manager, then a lecturer at NIDA in stage management, she started with Canterbury Theatre Guild. Um, some of the performers, like Nancy Hayes, was with the McKellar Group at Manly. So yes, they've. Uh, some of them do go on. Um, I had uh, when I was at Wollongong. We did a production of Annie, and we had two casts of kids. We had uh, one beautiful girl that I saw some years later. A, a photograph appeared across my desk, and here she was with legs up to her armpits, and she was one of the Bluebell, Bluebell girls in Paris. Wow! And so, you know, it, it is it is a, a sounding board or a stepping stone for some people who do go into the industry and do very well. Venue management, how did that come about? Because, uh, you know, there's a career in puppetry and, and uh, set building and design. And What happened was that um, by now, and we're talking, I guess, about, about 1969, and um, I, was, um, uh, I was at David Jones in the, at, at the uh, display studio, 
And I was also, I'd been invited to go on a, um, an advisory committee for Bankstown Council who were then planning the um, Bankstown Town Hall complex as it was, as it became in those days. And so uh, the more I sat on that committee, the more I thought this is very interesting. So I wrote to the council to say, when this place is up and running, I would really like to be involved in some sort of um, employment. Well, I didn't hear from them for a year until one day at David Jones, when I was about to leave to go to another job, I got a phone call from the town clerk to say, we're terribly sorry, but your letter was misfiled. I know, only just read it after one year. Oh, and by then, they were in the process, they'd employed a, a, a venue manager. Uh, we'd like to talk to you. So off I went and I became the, the um, deputy manager, assistant manager, because the guy that was the manager, he was an absolute expert on food and beverage and I, I was the theatre person. So we, we got on very well. I was there for, I don't know, two, two and a bit years. Ipswich City Council came along to, they were building a similar venue, they wanted to pick our brains, which they did. And then I got the message we would like you to come and work for us. And so it went from there. And I think I've been to open six or fixed up six or so regional venues. Orange and Alice Springs. Uh, I went to Orange, Alice Springs. Alice Springs was interesting. It was a lovely venue in the middle of the desert. Um, and there were big problems that, that weren't revealed to me in the interview stage because... I got there a few days early before I actually started and I made a point of going around and talking to the staff sitting at their desk. And the guy that was the accountant, I remember sitting at his desk and he said, uh, oh, a bit of, bit of a problem, mate. I said, what's the problem? He said, uh, we haven't got enough money to pay the wages next week. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a chook raffle? <laughs> um, as it turned out, the, the, the venue there was... Uh, it, it was being operated by a statutory authority of the Northern Territory Government, funded by the Northern Territory Government. And um, for whatever reason, um, my predecessor had been using operational funds and construction funds, or construction funds to, to fund operational things and vice versa. And the finances were an absolute hideous mess. And so... Um, some money was found to keep the place going and it was this enormous stuff, enormous stuff. But in Alice, in Alice Springs in general, there's always a huge turnover of people. So I was able to, I think I only had to get rid of three people, but the staff numbers were reduced by at least half and it was still you know, very functional and the finances, everything was all sorted out and then the Territory Government, uh, the, the Alice Springs Town Council wanted money to build a mall. And the Territory Government said, you can have the money for the mall, but you've got to take over the operation of the art centre. Which didn't sound such a bad idea in one regard, but it meant that everything, instead of being a statutory authority, we then became, we had to, we had to rework absolutely everything fall under the uh, the embrace of local government in, right. in the Northern Territory. Um, so I had to do the whole thing again. And I did. Uh, I had a, 
the town clerk at the council and the mayor, they were very much on side and uh, we did it. But uh, it meant, whereas in the old days, you know, the, the manager could do almost anything, you know, within legal reason, everything had to go through the council procedures and I thought, this is too hard, it's too hard to run an art centre in this way. So um, by then, uh, the wheels had fallen off my marriage, the, there were several new centres coming online for the bicentennial year, Parramatta, Riverside and IPAC at Wollongong. So I applied for both of those and um, subsequently had an interview at Wollongong because they wanted, the Wollongong Council wanted to operate that venue um, by a separate management entity to the council, which was absolutely, you know, I knew about that. And so eventually I went there and um, stayed there for nine years. Fair innings. So are you programming a product that goes into the theatre? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. In at the venues that that uh, that I've managed, I've always had the 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 uh, the rationale that because the ratepayers pay for the venue, they pay for the operation through council. Um, they need a fair. Uh, amount of exposure within reason and so I was able at each of the venues to work with community groups to give them um, a reasonable amount of uh, time in the theatres to uh, do whatever they do uh, a musical play, ballroom dancing, art exhibition whatever and then I would go and look for other product now, in the early days of these venues, there wasn't too much around. There was no, um, there was no uh, touring Australia or Arts on Tour or any of those groups. I, I was involved in the establishment of those groups, so that professional companies could go to a central place and say, "We have this show, and we want to tour it to wherever." We had to find our own stuff, um, or mount your own and I did both uh, at Wollongong particularly because we were because of the management set up we, I mean, there was a board of directors the council still had controlling uh, control of the the, uh, the the finances but it was a case of putting your bid for whatever money they would say yes or no you can have this much money and off you go so I would find product um, where I could. I had a big association with Peter and Ellen Williams okay. because they were, I went to them um, when they were running Phillips Street Theatre. Um, in, in Wollongong at the time, there was Theatre South. Now, they were catering for uh, the Chekhovs, the, the, what I say, the finer theatre things. I had done a survey when I got to Wollongong to say what do people want to see, and it was popular theatre. Now, Peter Williams was the exponent of popular theatre. Now, they might not have been, uh, they certainly weren't Chekhov, but he had the great skill of finding names 
and putting together very classy looking shows. So I went, I went to him and said, yeah, we've, we've got this new venue opening and uh, to cut to the chase, we, we um, eventually established with him a small touring circuit because by now the Laycock Street Theatre at Gosford was coming online, Glen Street Theatre was coming online um, and occasionally he would go further out to Orange or wherever. But generally he, he had at least three venues around Sydney not too far away, and so he could offer quite a, 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 a lengthy run to his actors. And so we, we opened uh, his first production at Wollongong was, relatively speaking, with June Salter and Roger Clemson. Now, who would have thought Roger Clemson, who was the, you know, the big newsreader? But you know, and, and it, this is your life. And this is your life. But Roger Clemson had um, uh, an acting uh, period in his life, and he'd worked with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Really? Really. So and <laughs> Peter had this skill of finding this stuff out. I mean, we did um, we did a production of Charlie's Aunt. And and um, the main character, or no, the, the aunt character, was Abigail. You're joking. I'm not. From uh, number 96. From number 96. <laughs> now, she was getting on a bit now. She didn't have to do much, but he had he had other good people like Mark Lee and um, Anna, his, his sister. They they were the two younger kids in the show. He did um, Arsenic and Old Lace with June Bronhill, Gwen Plum, and uh, Ron Hedrick. Now he put Stella together cast. he put together these casts, and at one stage, and June Solder became a great mate of a great mate of mine. She would say, Peter and Ellen Williams are employing more Australian actors at this point of time than the Sydney Theatre Company. Wow. And they were, because they had three or four shows on the road. They were, they were unsung heroes for the regional, regional uh, venues, and, and the productions always looked beautiful. Deirdre, uh, Deirdre, what's the second name? She passed away recently, beautiful designer. Um, and uh, or, or Ducky Kingsman, uh, we had a beautiful um, private lives with Amanda Muggleton and Dennis Olson. Doug Kingsman designed a beautiful set uh, that uh, that came to us because by now he'd moved to the Playhouse or the Opera uh, the Opera House. So we were getting good stuff from him. Gary Penny was sending us good stuff. Um, then later, Kerry no, Jewell. Jewel. Uh, Kerry Jewell was very naughty. Uh, he gave us some good good product, but when Peter Williams moved out of Glen Street, Kerry moved in uh, with the same idea of doing a subscription series. But sadly, um, the funds, ticket sales were used to bankroll the next show, right. which never happened. Right. Um, so there was a big uh, blot on the, the touring copybook uh, for Bellish, him. Stuck and Bloom. Exactly. Um, so yes, we used to, we would find stuff, and then at, for in, at one period of time at Wollongong, there was nothing on the horizon for whatever reason, and the local government uh, financial year had changed from um, uh, a fiscal financial year to a calendar year, or whatever, and it meant we, we had a period of eighteen months we had to survive uh, before the next round of grants and. There was, wasn't much product around, so uh, 
I'd been approached by a guy from the university at Wollongong, Peter Shepherd, to say that he would like to start an orchestra. So we had we had dinner, and by the end of the dinner, I said, "You don't want an orchestra; you want to do shows," uh, which is absolutely true. And Peter and I are great mates. In fact, I'm seeing him next week. Um, he, um, uh, we, we, I put it to my board of directors that we would like to mount a production. Of, would you believe the Merry Widow? We wanted to do shows that were a bit different. In town, in Wollongong at the time, there were the Arcadians who were still there. We didn't want to tread on their toes, although we knew we knew that we would, because they'd had the game by the throat for, at that point, 20-odd years. But they only did two shows a year. So that was four weeks' occupancy of the theatre. Um, and their shows were... But before They hadn't moved into the venue by by then, by yet, uh, at that point. Um, but I I'd, I'd had started a, a nice association with them. But I said to them, you know, we are going to do an operetta, The Merry Widow, and oh. I said, wherever possible, we will avoid doing what you're doing. My board of directors agreed. We brought in a couple of pros for the leading roles. Peter put together a lovely orchestra. We had a new set, new costumes, a, a designer from the uh, university because we, we worked in quite well with the in the Faculty of Creative Arts. And so we started doing our own productions there. And it got to the stage where, where to keep a level playing field with all of the shows, whether whether I bought in a, a Peter Whitney show or whatever, in those days we made quite sure that the books were open to anyone and we, we could demonstrate that we actually paid ourselves the rent these days that doesn't happen. We paid the rent, we paid all of the operational costs and we would make a profit or a loss. Most times we made a profit. And so we were able to do that with uh, first off the Mary Widow and then it moved on. And and we were doing two or three shows. We eventually went into theatre restaurant in the small theatre. We would do plays in the small theatre and so we became our own biggest customer, uh, which was good. Now, a lot of people didn't agree with that. We should be doing art pieces. I left that to Theatre South. They, they, did, they did those things very well. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're developing entrepreneurial skills. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the good thing about it too was it gave the theatre staff, my, my staff, because I had, I'd, I'd gathered some good people in the technical area particularly. You know, we, you can light a dance school um, in 10 minutes. But we would we would plan and we would program and we'd say, okay, this is we're going to do the sound of music, and this is the set design, and so we'd build it. The lighting designer would do it. The cost. I had a wonderful wardrobe uh, group of, of people. My cousin Betty, she she ran a big team of stitches, and so we we created some beautiful stuff. So it was, as I said before, like in, at any community theatre production any one night there'll be a hundred people. So we had a very big uh, following, uh, ticket buying following, and a very big following of people who wanted to do our shows. Of course, we we did tread on the Arcadians' uh, toes uh, from time to time, but we, in, in order to uh, keep the association still um, okay, I would give them um, I would be able to give them the same sort of opportunities that we gave ourselves 
in that if you wanted to come in in a couple of extra days to rig the set and there was nothing on, we said, okay, just do it. Um, so we, we retained a good working relationship. And I, and, and I still do, as a lot of my mates in Wollongong still uh, with the Arcadians Theatre Group, they've got their own theatre now at, um, at Coromel. Um, and and uh, occasionally they'll go back into IPAC, but the whole complexion of IPAC has changed, as it has changed in many other uh, regional theatre centres where it's uh, imported shows only. The Lyric Theatre at the Star Casino. Yes. You yes. were there on at the ground floor, were you for yes. that? Yes. yes. What, what are the challenges in getting what, a big theatre like that? What happened there? Going. Oh, well, I, I'd been to. Um, I. I was in Toowoomba. Uh, working on the Empire Theatre project, and it turned and and uh, what happened there that the when I was I was in, employed on the. Uh, premise that it would be operated by a company uh, separate to the council, like Wollongong. And so, some of the other venues in Queensland were operating very successfully. But it turned out that the CEO at that council was an absolute control freak. And so when I'd set up a company uh, and a board of directors, or call for interest from the board of directors to run the show, um, we got some very high flyers, big high flyers. And he didn't like that. So skillfully he persuaded the council no we don't need to do that we can do it ourselves so it, all my work had to be redone and I, I could tell then and of course uh, his uh, offer was you don't need a board you can just answer to me uh, and the danger the red the red lights started flashing so um, and at that time uh, my partner could not get work if you didn't have work when you went to Toowoomba you couldn't get work. It's an absolute closed shop. It was then. It might not be now, but it was then. So cut to the chase. Um, he got a job back in Sydney, and I rang IPAC to say, I'm coming back to Sydney. The manager there at the time said, I'll come and work at the workshop, because they, they were still building and whatever. Um, I did that for a while. Got a phone call out of the blue one day from... Uh, really useful company to say we are setting up the Lyric Theatre which I'd heard about and you your name has been put forward you might be interested in being the theatre manager which I was so yes I, I went to the Lyric Theatre working for really useful theatres I started uh, a bit before the general manager who was Jill Kite and Eventually, we, we moved into the venue before it opened. We were there for a few weeks before it opened. We'd, we'd been on and off the site many times, of course, and it was a fantastic project. Be the largest venue that it managed at, at the time. Been, I mean, yeah. a wonderful stage. It still is. It's it's better now than it was then. Um, we had battles. We 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 had some battles with the architects who would not budge. For instance, some of the seats because of architectural detail around the balconies, the two balconies, you couldn't see the stage. Couldn't see the stage at all. Um, and we, we, we wanted some modest alterations to the decorations, no, wouldn't budge. And there were some other things that were just not going to work, which we had to fix, um, and we did. 
And uh, yet I was there for the, uh, I mean, I remember the, the, the gala opening night with Michael Crawford, uh, a, a concert, and at, at six o'clock the fire brigade arrived because Michael decided to make tea and toast in his dressing room. <laughs> and the smoke, the smoke detectors went off. So we had the fire brigade, the full disaster. Opening night. Opening night. And at the same time, that was on. Tom Jones was over in the showroom and down on the harbour uh, opposite the, the casino was Diana Ross. It was the most fabulous night. It really was. And, of course, there was a huge party afterwards. And then um, a series of concerts which were almost yesterday's yesterday's performers like Peter, Paul and Mary and Kenny G and people like that. And the reason for that was that um, when the programming was being planned, really useful were going to put Sunset Boulevard, bring it up from Melbourne. Right. And uh, it didn't work, sadly, in Melbourne. I mean, it was beautiful production, just mm. beautiful. Mm. But whatever reason, they said no. So the casino quickly rustled up this program of of uh, these artists uh, for, I don't know, it was about a month, I suppose. And then we had An Ideal Husband, which you certainly know about. Yes, absolutely. That came in after that. Um, and I, re I remember, you know, rehearsals there. and uh, No, we rehearsed at the Capitol, then we moved down there. But going off for lunch and things, there was no infrastructure at all around the casino at that time. Nothing. We'd have to walk for miles down Nothing. Piermont Nothing. to get lunch. Nothing. Uh, we, the staff, we, the, we were able to go to the staff. Um, uh, there was a big, a big cafeteria. We, we could eat there. Um, but yes, you're right. There was nothing. You, you, once you were there, you were there. Um, and the, and, and the, the punters, the, the audience, because the signage was very bad in those days, because it was a new venue, I, and, and, and I remember particularly with um, An Ideal Husband, then later Showboat, there were lockouts, um, which the audiences weren't used to, and they would arrive late because they couldn't find their way from the car park. Oh, right, to the theatre. To yeah, the theatre, yeah. and go, the, you know, the show would, have, would start, and we were having dreadful, dreadful scenes in the void. Um, I mean, but we survived. And... Um, then in came you know Showboat, which was due to run for I think nine months, and after about four months, it started to dwindle. But it stayed; it just stayed there. It was a, I mean, extraordinary production. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, you're talking about architecture. I used to um, John McCullum, who was in yes. an ideal husband and yes. also a producer, would, would would say to me, he said, "There's too many fire doors in here." You know, yes. I mean, as far as you know, yes. audience entry. He said, "You know, cut that because I mean, there's something like twenty or well, how that, many? He that, said, "If you cut that down to five, we'd save a lot more money." <laughs> well, uh, when when that theatre was built, uh, there was some sort of dispensation that uh, you might recall that at the Lyric, uh, every two or three rows goes to an exit door, but there were no exit signs over the doors. Right. Which was a requirement, but there was some sweet talking and that didn't happen. But the exit doors all had beautifully polished brass trim. And when Hal Prince arrived, he didn't like it. Because of the, the glow. It was too shiny. Right. Well, I mean, you're looking at the stage, but Hal was looking at the doors. Uh, 
So the cleaners had to come in and with a, you know some extraordinary concoction to try and take the shine off, because I mean the cleaners took great pride in in the whole casino, mm. like it was beautiful, beautifully cleaned, and rub and polish and try and take some of the shine off the off the brass, which was just just unbelievable. <laughs> but they did it, and of course when he went away, polished it again, and uh, but now there's been some wonderful. Uh, Modifications to the to the auditorium, and there's I noticed last time I was there that there are ex- exit signs uh, at the doors, which should be there. Yeah. But yes, um, I, I remember uh, Googie with us particularly, who didn't like the theatre at all. It was too big, and if I recall, we had to use float microphones on across the stage. Yes. Uh, because the venue was just cavernous. Yeah. I remember her saying terribly loudly. Uh, at the after show party, I'm so glad to be going to Melbourne to a real theatre. <laughs> down, <laughs> down, down, down at the Madge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dear old Googie and John. Um, and then you finished your professional career, am I right, at Parramatta Riverside? I did. Um, after a, a couple of years at the casino um, as the theatre manager, uh, one night I was working back. I was working, not working back, but we had a show on, and a fax came through, and I picked up the fax off the machine, as you do, and it was a note from the casino to really useful theatres talking about the um, the takeover. Oh! Cut to the chase, uh, the casino were going to buy out the contract from really useful. Now, in hindsight, I'm sure it was all cleverly orchestrated, because when the casino wanted to build where they are, they needed to provide a theatre for the people of New South Wales, and who better to operate it than Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber? So that's why Really Useful Theatres uh, was created, to operate the theatre, and we got all of the bugs ironed out, and when all that was done, let's buy them out. Now Really Useful did quite well, because there was you know, a lot of money changed hands. We were offered our jobs to stay there. Jill Kite decided not to. I said I would stay, which I did for some time, but suddenly I was in middle management of the casino and I was going to meetings um, where they would be discussing you know, all the gambling stuff and they had a, a phrase which I've never been able to remember, but more or less this is how much the suckers have lost this last month or whatever. Punters. Uh, the punters. It was a very beautiful term, but I knew exactly what it meant. And I just, it was just so wrong for me. So I left, I resigned. I rang Tim McFarlane at Really Useful to say, I'm going, Would can I uh, use you as a referee for something? He said, certainly. And within minutes, I got a phone call back from there to say, because at the time they were preparing for Cats Runs Away with the Circus. And would I like to go run away with the circus? So with my partner, we both did. Craig Craig became the uh, merchandise manager for Playbill. And I was that. So that happened. We toured with Cats. Then we toured with uh, Grease, with John Frost by now. And then we toured with Shout, which sadly died after eight weeks instead of eight months. And I was uh, looking for a job at the time, and my brother by now was operations manager at Riverside, rang me to say that we need a front of house manager urgently, 
the current one has decided to go immediately and we need someone for the Sydney festival period. So I moved over to there in the January of whatever year and stayed there for four years. So it was it was a four weeks job which turned into four, four years. Four years. And it was there we call uh, by now. Uh, we, we had both decided that we would retire together because um, our mate Tony Hayes was the um, he was the business manager. He had the three of us. We were doing some great stuff there, but he he decided uh, he retired, and so we thought, okay. Um, we decided to retire together, so we did, and um, we had a. They gave us the opportunity for a farewell, so we put on a concert. As you do, as you do, we put on the show, called in a lot of mates. We had a band um, and put on a great variety show with a lot of musical comedy people, and it was terrific. And so, yep, retired to work harder than I've ever worked. <laughs> In community theatres, continuing community to, theater. to build and design and, yeah. and direct, um, in which you've just announced your retirement from that as well. I haven't announced my retirement from that again. I'm at this minute. I'm closer to eighty-one than eighty. I don't feel it, but uh, the spirit is willing. But sometimes the flesh is weaker. And anyway, it's time for other people to take over. I've been doing stuff with Miranda now non-stop. I think I've designed about 35 shows in a row. Um, and with my partner, we've decided, and we have, we're purchasing a property in South Australia where I have family, my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids are all over there. So we will move there, hopefully, before Christmas this year. Brilliant. Bob, you've given so much to the arts in New South Wales. What have the arts given to you? Oh, a lot of headaches. <laughs> but um, great enjoyment. I mean, I, I, I'm the first to admit that when my kids were growing up uh, and, and I was married at the time to, to Josephine, that I spent far too much time, uh, A, with my, well, my job. Well, I had to spend it with my job, but um, I was doing, you know, community theatre stuff as well. Having said that, I still found time to go take the kids to hockey and netball and all those things. Um, I probably, yes, I should have spent more time with the family in, in that regard, but um, uh, I did, and I still do get an enormous amount of pleasure. Uh, I mean, there's nothing quite like, as you would know, you, you, know, you pick up a, a script and there's a group of people and and you know, within three months, you've got a show on the stage because there's the words, there's the music, and let's make a show. Wasn't that great? I had no idea about the Tintooki Puppet Company until I met Bob. Fabulous history, and that's why Stages continues to deliver. Vital that we capture our stories, our history, and our rich arts heritage. I know we all wish Bob the best with the next chapter in his life and encourage him to enjoy a well-earned rest though I don't think he'll require much encouragement. Now, a quiz question. Who do these women have in common? Sally Bowles, Maria Von Trapp, Truly Scrumptious, Belle and Charity Barnum. Well, if you said Rachel Beck, you'd be absolutely right. Rach is my next guest on Stages. She's enjoyed some fabulous work on stage and screen and it's a super conversation. 
A life in the theatre is not necessarily hi-ho the glamorous life and Rachel is very candid discussing the realities of the business. Not to be missed, please do join Rachel Beck and me, Peter Ayers, next time on Stages. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time.